Would you turn, please, to the book of Romans? And we're going to read just one verse in Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5. I can assure you that these are 15 tremendously significant words. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. I would like to ask you to think about this verse, these words, as presenting hope for the hopeless. This is a verse which, before I was saved, seemed irrelevant to me because it didn't tell me what I had to do. Now I realize that this verse is gospel-packed, terse, simple, pointed with an unrivaled economy of words. This verse is telling us about our helpless condition and God's wonderful provision. As in so many of those glorious gospel texts that dot the pages of our Bible, the verse brings before us why we need a Savior and then presents us to the one person who can save us. So for a few moments at the beginning of my message, I want you to think about our helpless condition expressed in these words, without strength, without strength. Now, of course, in what way are you and I, by nature, as we are as human beings, are we without strength? Because I am sure that you have strength, power, the ability to do many things in life. But this verse is stating that there is a sense in which you and I are absolutely helpless. It's interesting to understand the background of this verse. The background of this verse is that there was something that Abraham, that ancient patriarch, fervently wanted, but he had absolutely no power to obtain. So God had to work in order for Abraham to experience the blessing that he longed for. The background of this verse reminds us that you and I are without strength to obtain the salvation that we need. Allow me to just present it this way. Think about the past of your life. Every one of us has sins that we have committed. Nothing you can do tonight, nothing you could do in any of the tomorrows that you may be given by God can erase one of the sins that has already been committed. So there's nothing I could do tonight that is going to undo what I have already done. I'm absolutely powerless, powerless to deal with the sins that I have already committed. They are already recorded in God's book. That that there's a, a, an essence of permanence about it is expressed in these graphic words when God speaks about sins being written with a, a pen of iron and engraven in stone as if nothing can erase them and nothing can efface them. Now, there is a way every one of your sins could be washed away, but there's nothing you and I can do. Nothing you and I can do to erase them. We are absolutely helpless. That may be what was behind the question, the great question that Socrates, the Greek philosopher, asked so long ago when he asked, why is it that men, and he's speaking generally, humans, why is it that men know what is good, but do what is bad? And I might add this question, why is it that we, human beings, are capable of such soaring heights of unselfishness, creativity? artistic ability, noble accomplishments, and yet at the same time, 
are horribly capable of such beastly and brutal and violent and selfish acts as has marked the human race all through history. How is it that the same kind of creature can build a Taj Mahal and a Treblinka? How is it that we can be capable of such things of beauty and order, symmetry and, and glory, and at the same time be marked by such violence? You remember Alexander Solzhenitsyn's very insightful statement. He said, if it were just a case that there were some bad people among us, and we could just draw a line and separate the bad people from the rest of us good people, that would be very easy. But he said, each of us sees good and bad in our own hearts. And who wants to draw a line right through his own heart? So when it comes to our sins, we're powerless to put them away. When it comes to obtaining the salvation that we need, all of our efforts are useless. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 64 and verse 6 that our best deeds are like filthy rags. Or as Brother David used the expression the other night, dirty laundry. Imagine my trying to present to God as my payment for entering heaven, a basket full of dirty laundry. That is why the Bible says that none of us can redeem ourselves or give to God the ransom. Now, you must understand that all through history, we've been trying and we have been very creative. We have invented remarkable and remarkably complex religions to try to make us feel better about our sins and give us a, a false hope that maybe, maybe what I paid, maybe what I endured, maybe what I suffered, maybe what I obeyed, maybe something I did will take care of my sins. But then we turn to what God says, and he reminds us that we are sinners who live in a sinful world and are incapable of saving ourselves. I think that the second successful heart transplant, which of course was done by Dr. Christian Bernard, was done to a fellow surgeon, a fellow doctor. His name was Dr. Philip Blayberg. There are three things about that surgery that have often struck me. One is that when it was done, Dr. Bernard walked into um, the, the, the room where Dr. Blayberg was recovering and he had a box in his hand. And he opened it up and showed him. And he said to him, Dr. Bleiberg, do you realize you're the first person in history who has ever gotten a look at his own bad heart? Because in that heart, in that box was the heart that he had taken out of the chest of Dr. Bleiberg. There's something else about that. That when he was coming out, now he, of course, he, it was a long, tedious operation. There were 51 men and women involved in it. And for weeks, he lived in a sterile room because of a fear of bacteria. When he was discharged on a March day in 1968, Dr. Bernard announced, Dr. Blayberg is passing into a bacteria-filled world. Dr. Blayberg, this patient, is leaving a sterile environment, and he's passing into a bacteria-filled world. In a spiritual sense, you and I live in that kind of a world, sin-filled. Sin is in our heart, and it's all around us, and we are powerless to put away our sins and powerless to save ourselves. And then, of course, you will understand that in a coming day, every one of us will be powerless in the hands of death. I sometimes think of... Um, Samson in the Old Testament. Do you remember that man that God imbued with special power and he was defeating God's enemies? But when his hair was cut and his devotion to God, the symbol of it was gone. Do you remember that the Philistines 
leaped on him. And this man who had power up till then suddenly finds himself in the hands of a power that he cannot overcome. Solomon said about us, there is nobody who has power in the day of death. We can fight disease. We can face surgery and come through. But none of us looks death in the face and lives to tell about it. Because we're powerless. Psalm 89, there was a very, very poignant question asked. The psalmist said, what, what, man, what man is he that lives and shall not see death? Will he deliver his soul from the, the hand of Hades? As, as if eternity is reaching into the world and every now and then claims some life. And it's impossible for us to escape it. Maybe you remember, if you were old enough, you will remember that horrible accident in 1985 when a J.A.L. jumbo jet crashed into the side of a mountain and 520 people died. When that plane took off, the people on that plane had 45 minutes to live. At some point in that flight, they knew they were doomed. The pilot had no control. Somebody on the ground said it was, it was weaving back and forth like the way a drunken man walks. The pilot wrestling with the controls and, and un, unable to do something. So for a large chunk of that 45 minutes, people on that plane knew they were flying to their deaths. You know what they did? Some of them took off their rings and they etched goodbye messages because they knew perhaps that will survive the fire when we crash. And I, I've often thought, Without being morose, I've often thought about those people on that plane, knowing, knowing it's going to crash, realizing what would happen, understanding that the end was very near, every one of them knowing and at least assuming that this was the end for them. And I've thought about us, because in some ways that's true of every one of us. We don't notice it because we don't all die together like that in a plane. We die separately. So we don't stop to think that really every one of us helplessly is traveling toward a moment when we must leave this world and go into eternity, and we are without strength. So what hope could there ever be for sinners who cannot erase their sins, who cannot save themselves, who cannot defeat death? What hope could there ever be for a creature like that to be in heaven? Listen to the words. When that was true of us, Christ died for the ungodly. Just those five words. The Bible has wonderful five-word texts every now and then. They're very memorable. They're, they're, they're marvelous. You must be born again. Prepare to meet thy God. God speak all these words. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for the ungodly. What does that mean tonight? Do you know why it was needed? Do you know why it was Christ who had to come? Why this was required? That's why I have spent your valuable time up till now in the meeting trying to paint the picture of how helpless we are. Because in order for a creature like this, like us, a sinner, a helpless man or woman to be saved, Christ was going to have to die. God could not institute a religion that helpless people could be, belong to that would save them. Not if they're helpless. God couldn't send down some rules so that if we just followed those rules, somehow those rules would reach into my yesterdays and would wash away those sins. It couldn't happen. 
And in fact, the Bible tells us that the Ten Commandments really were given to show us that we were helpless sinners who needed a Savior. So if anything was ever going to be done to rescue a helpless, ungodly sinner like the person who is speaking to you tonight, it was going to mean that God's Son would have to die for me. God would actually have to be willing to give his son. Christ would actually have to be willing to sacrifice his life. To become one of us. To die on a cross. To bear my sins. To go into death. And rise again. In order for an ungodly sinner to be saved. Now you see. Many people approach God looking for his help in being saved, his help in living a little better life, his his help in what they will often describe as, as walking on the narrow road a little better. It's not a help you need, it's a savior. It's, it's not a coach to encourage you to just, uh, you know, keep at it and all will be well. You need a savior, a deliverer, a rescuer. When somebody has had a heart attack, if it was someone you loved and the emergency team came and looked at him and you could see that he or she was fighting for his life and one of the uh, teams that came in said, well, you know what? We don't think we're going to take him to a hospital. We think we're going to take him to an advanced care place and, and they'll, they'll provide him with the meals and, and give him any help he needs. No, 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 no. He's beyond that. You don't, you don't want him to be taken to a care home He's going to die. He needs to be rescued from death. Now, God is not in the business of providing assisted living. Not when it comes to our sins. He actually is offering emergency treatment for dying men and women, how you can be saved from your sins, how that past can be erased, how salvation can come to you right now, and how the moment when you must die, instead of it's being a hopeless moment of despair, will actually be a moment when you will step from earth into the presence of the one who died for you and has saved you. That's what God's salvation entails. It had to be Christ who would die. It was in due time, just the right time. Now, there must be a lot more to this than I can tell you. But among other things, when Christ died, as I've already intimated, it was after that moment on Mount Sinai when God came down and more than a million people gathered at the base of the mountain and watched this mountain on fire as if it were a volcanic explosion without lava and heard God speak, the voice of God rolling down the, the slopes of Sinai, coming at them as God was talking to them. And they said, Moses, you go talk to him. Don't let us hear his voice anymore. And so up into the dark, into the clouds goes Moses. And you remember, he comes down with two stone tables. And the finger of God had carved on those tables what we call the Ten Commandments. Christ didn't come before that. Christ came after that. Do you know why? Because you see, I might think I'm really not all that bad. And then I look at the verses, at the verse that says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not bear false witness. That is a lie. It outlines sins in a person's heart as well as in a person's life. And the whole intent of it was to show me that I needed a savior. 
And he came after that. I remember reading once where a man said to his son, who was um, a foreigner coming to school here in the United States, he said to him, learn English. It's the operating system of the business world. Learn English. If you're used to a computer, you know the operating system on your computer. It is the operating system of the business world. The operating system of the world. When these words were written. Was the Greek language. That had been spread over the known world by a man called Alexander the Great. And the Lord Jesus came after that. So do you understand what that would mean? That when he would tell his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel, the lingua franca of the day, the, 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 the language that would be spread throughout the world and in which the New Testament would be written, would not be a thousand different languages that everyone would have to learn, but the whole known world would be speaking the same language, thus facilitating the spread of the gospel. Do you know when Christ came? Not when Alexander the Great was ruling. Not when Cyrus or Darius, but when Rome was in power. Do you know the meaning and significance of that? It was Rome that executed public criminals by means of crucifixion. And it is the Bible that said that the Redeemer would die on a tree. Not stoned, not beheaded, not thrown to the lions like the Medo-Persian Empire would do. And the whole rise to power of the Roman Empire brought about the truth of God's word. As one day, coming out of the walls of Jerusalem, the gates of Jerusalem, there came a man bearing his cross. A few women weeping on the side. Many people gleaming with their delight in what's about to happen. And it came to a little rise called Golgotha. Or in Latin, Calvary, Skull Hill, the place of a skull. And they laid that down and they joined the two pieces of wood, the patibulum and the stipes, and they nailed them to wood. And they lifted the cross up and they thought they were doing what they wanted to do and they did not realize that centuries before, God said, on a cross, his son would give his life and shed his blood to save men and women. The death of Christ is not a part of God's salvation. I would be wrong even to tell you it is a huge part of God's salvation or the most of God's salvation. It's everything. It's everything. That's something I didn't realize. I wish I had the words, the language to convey it to you. It's everything. Everything you need to go to heaven. Everything you need to escape hell. Everything you need to have your sins washed away. Everything you need to have eternal life. Everything you need to be right with God forever. It was all provided at that cross, by that man, through that death, and as a result of that work. And tonight, in five words, I can tell you God's incomparable, glorious, marvelous plan of salvation. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for guilty sinners so that they might be saved. So if there's somebody who's come to the meeting tonight and you say, I, 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 would love, I would love to know how I could be in heaven. Do you see for whom it was? That Christ died. And I'd like to ask you if this is you.
Christ died for the ungodly. The man who wrote these words told us on another occasion that he never deserved salvation and he never deserved to have Christ die for him. He said, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was injurious, but I obtained mercy. God, in his grace, saved him. And he tells us why. It is remarkable language. You sang, you sang similar words tonight. Do you know what, you know what he wrote? He said, the son of God loved me and he gave himself for me. He doesn't say the Son of God loves me. Paul, the preacher, Paul, the apostle, he's not saying the Son of God loves me as I'm serving him. He's saying back there, when I cursed his name, when I hated his gospel, when I detested his people, when I was sending them away to die and cursing and blaspheming his name, he loved me. And he died to save me. And tonight Christ died for the ungodly is the message that comes to you. And if there's an ungodly sinner here tonight, you can have salvation all because of what he did. There was a great gospel preacher of a past day that some here, whose name some here will recognize. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was nearing the end of his life. His close friend William Olney and his wife and others were around the bed. And Mr. Spurgeon said to Mr. Olney, my theology is in four words. I'm not saying that's all I would preach if I were raised up, but it's good enough to die on. My theology is four words. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. There was a time in my life when that would never have been enough for me. Never. I would need some feeling. I would need something to assure me, other than the Bible, other than that great fact I've just mentioned, I would need something to convince me that I would be okay when I die. But on a July night in 1966, when I realized I was without strength, when I realized I was helpless, when I realized I was ungodly, for the first time in my life it made sense that Christ died for the ungodly, and that meant me. You know, there's a very... Um, Interesting verse in the Proverbs. Proverbs are filled with wise little sayings. And in one section, the writer of the Proverbs takes up some natural history. And he tells us about various creatures that God has created. And he tells us about a little creature called a coney. And he said, the conies are but a feeble folk. They don't have a lot of power. They're without strength. So you know what they do in the face of danger? They run to the rocks. They run to the rock. The conies are but a feeble folk. So they hide themselves in the rock. You may not think that you are feeble. You may think God is insulting you when he says you're without strength. I embrace that gladly tonight, that I was absolutely helpless. And I ran to the rock. And I've trusted Christ. And Jesus died for me is enough for me to rest on and to know that I will be in heaven all because Christ died for thee ungodly. I hope as my dear brother preaches the gospel that you will take in that wonderful message and trust Christ as your savior. Thanks everyone for coming out tonight. Uh, just uh, one verse. Um, some of what I'd like to speak on has already been 
mentioned or brought up by our brother, so uh, I'm hoping that this will, will come together well for you. So I'd like to read one verse. It's found in Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to read verse 4. So that's in your New Testament. It's right after the book of First and Second Corinthians, and you have Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. We're going to read a well-known verse here in Galatians 4. Galatians 4 and verse 4, this is what, once again, the same writer that wrote in Romans, he wrote here too, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says this, but when the fullness of the time was come, or really, He's saying at the right time, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. We'll read it one more time and I'm going to go through it and try to explain some of this. But God, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. So that's my verse for tonight. Um, you can keep note of that, because you can always go back and look at it. And that's what I'd like to speak on. There's a unique comparison to what we both spoke on, because we read in the verse that our, our brother spoke on tonight in Romans 5 and 6, for when we were yet without strength at the right time. And our verse tonight here tells us that, at the right time, at the right time. And so you'd say, I'm glad you're here tonight, because this is the, this, you'd, say, you'd say, this is good timing, that we're both here tonight. Um, maybe just as an introduction tonight to what I'd like to speak on. Uh, sometimes we talk about perfection, and, and a lot of people are, are wondering, what is it that what is it that's being offered here tonight? You've come to the meeting. We thank you for coming. And, and we want you to leave with something that you didn't come with. And we want you to have something that anyone can have. It doesn't matter where you were born. And it doesn't matter what you've done. And you'd say, what is that? That's God's salvation. And you'd say, you know, I, I, I'd like to be a better person. And yet God talks about something that's perfect tonight. There was a French philosopher, last name De Saint, uh, from maybe 100 years ago, and he had a definition for perfect. He said, per what's perfection or what's perfect, he goes, is, is when you can't add anything more and when you can't take anything else away. You can't add and you can't take away. People always ask me, they go, Dave, are you done with your house? And I say, no, I still have to paint it. It's a lot of money. Um, I have to put a new roof on it. So I got to add a roof. I got to add paint. I got to add a wife. I got to take away all the garbage in the basement, right? I got to take away uh, all the, the junk downstairs. Uh, I, I recently inherited another person in my house and I got to, I somehow got to convince him to leave, you know, and there's all these things I got to add and take away from the house to make it perfect. It's never going to be perfect. Sometimes they ask me about my health. 
They say, Dave, how you doing? How you feeling? Three weeks of gospel meetings. How you feel? And I say, you know, I could use about 48 hours more of sleep, more sleep, and maybe some more vitamins, and maybe better food. That's an invitation. I'd like to come over and eat at your house tomorrow night. More food. And you say, you know, I'd also like to take away some things from my health. I'd like to take away some of the bad habits, the bad foods that I eat, but I still got to take away and I still got to add for good health. They say, Dave, your life, how you doing in life? Anything. And I say, you know, there's still a thousand things I want to do in life. And, and there's still so many things I would love to have in life. And yet there's so many things I want to take away. There's things about me I don't like. I don't like the way I act sometimes. And some of the things I say, I still want to take away. And I still want to add. And you say, isn't that all of us? None of us are perfect. None of us have perfect houses. None of us have perfect health. None of us have perfect lives. What about your chances of being in heaven? Your chances of being in heaven, where are you at? Because for me, for me, according to this Bible, I can add nothing else. You want to know why? Because I never added one thing to it. Christ did everything. You say, is there anything else that be could taken away from you, Dave? No, because when Christ died at the cross, he died for every single one of my wrongs, of my evils, of my sins, every single one. You can't take away any more sins because all of them were taken away when Christ died. You can't add anything to my salvation because Christ, he did it. I add nothing. He did it all. So you say, what are my chances of being in heaven? They're perfect. They're perfect. You say, no. Yeah, they are. They're perfect because I have a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. I have a perfect savior. There's no such thing as a perfect church. They're always adding seats or taking away. They're always adding teachings or taking them away. You say, nothing, all these buildings that we see all around here, none of them, none of them. All the uh, documents that, that, that they've been written about for the past 200 years, none of them. Some of them go out of fashion. Some of them become new. You say, there's, there's no such thing as a perfect hymn, Right? Every hymn that we sing, you know, it has just, it could be a little better, or a little worse. And you'd say, no, the only thing I know of is perfect is the man who died for me at Calvary. And he died for you. And you could have a perfect, a perfect guarantee tonight of being in heaven. Why? Because this is perfect. This Bible is perfect. And this Bible tells me that the Lord Jesus came at the right time. That's what our verse said. It was perfect timing. You say, how's your timing in life? This is just, you got to be practical in means every once in a while. Did everyone get here five minutes before the meeting? Looking at a couple guilty people now. How's your timing, you know? We always say, God's never late. He's never early. He's perfect, right on time. Everything that he does, just a perfect timing. We, we heard the verse already. For when we were yet without strength, when we had no strength, we had nothing we could do. You say, that's the worst time is when I can't do anything, when I'm in a hospital bed, when I'm sick, when I can't do anything, you say, that's my worst time, you know, for God, that was the perfect time when I could do nothing. For when we were yet without strength, at the perfect time, Christ died for the ungodly. And our verse here says that God sent forth his son, right? It was perfect timing. God's never late. He's never early. He does everything at a perfect time time he he has done everything well and he's done everything at the right time that could be said of none of us 
All of us, we're always looking. You ever get into an argument with someone and you're arguing and then you leave the argument. You probably lost and you think, I should have said that. But it's always an hour later. You're mad because it was bad timing. You ever been with someone, you're a loved one or you're, you're, it's always the day after Christmas. You said, that's the gift I should have gotten them. That's what I should have wrote in the card. That's what I should have said to that, that person that I wanted a date with. That's what I should have said. But timing is everything. And yet our verse says, God came at the, God sent his son and he came into this world at the perfect time. How's your timing? Because you want to know what's unique about God is God waits for you tonight. The one who has perfect timing, he waits for you. What will you do with Jesus Christ? What will you do with him? The Bible says God waits and he waits and he waits, but he won't wait forever. One day I will either be six feet under or Jesus Christ will have returned to this earth. But you know what? We don't have forever. But we will be forever in heaven or in hell. And God waits to know what you will do with his son, Jesus Christ. Will you believe him that he died for you? Or will you seek something or someone else? And so at the right time, and not only that, but God sent the right person. It says this, the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. That's, that's an amazing truth. If if sometimes, if, if, if all of a sudden we got a call from the White House tonight and they said, we're sending someone, I would expect the guy who cuts the lawn to show up in the tent, never the president. If, if all of a sudden, if, if you knew that, that there was going to be someone from the New York Yankees was going to come to this tent tonight, I would expect the bat boy, not the first baseman. And yet when God says he's going to send someone, it's not an angel, it's not someone who's up there. It's, it's not someone from the Old Testament. It's everything that he has. It's his son. And he sends him into this world. You know, and just to think about him. Uh, sometimes we, we often say if, you're, if you follow sports and your team needs a player, they always say, who's the best person available right now, right? If you're, if you're going through the summer months and your, your, your baseball pitcher gets hurt, they always say, who's the best guy who's available? Who's, who's the best guy that we can get? Uh, I think sometimes in our work, we look through resumes all the time. I, I, I don't do it because they don't trust me. But my brother does it. And he looks through, sometimes he shows me resumes. And, and always, always, every resume that we get, the person always says, I'm the right guy for the job. I'm the right guy. And you look at their experience and you say, uh, they, they don't do anything that we do. They, 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 they never even had a job. And you say, how could they be the right person for the job? And, and you're, you're mes- I'm the right guy. And yet you say, what is the resume? What's the resume of Jesus Christ? What's the resume? What makes him not only the only savior, but the perfect savior? My friend, he hung the world on nothing. He made this globe. He placed the stars in the sky. He calls the sun out and tells it to come up, and he tells it to go down again. He's the one. He's the one whom 10,000 times 10,000 angels, they wait for his command. He has employed millions of angels. He has fastened the stars in the sky. He has told the oceans to come so far and to stop. He has put the mountains exactly where he wants them. He directs the jet stream as it rolls across the plains of this country. And my friend, 
That is nothing compared to what he did on a Friday in the year 8033 when for six hours he suffered and died for your sins. That's his resume. Tell me, do you have anybody who compares with that? Anybody. You say, was he the only one available? No, he's the only savior God ever sent. He's the only son God ever had. Some of us, you'd say, if you had one son, you'd say the military should never take him from you if you had one son. He should never have to go into the armed forces if you had one boy. God had one son, and he gave him to die at Calvary for you, for you. And our Bible says it was the right time, and it was the right person. It was the right person because he was born of a woman. He was completely God and completely man. He had the same body that we have, and yet he had no sin. He didn't have the problem we had. He didn't have our problem. He was God, so he, could, he, could, he had all the resources of heaven, and yet he was man so that he could die. And our Bible says, we've already heard, he was born under the law. All those rules, all those rules that we can never keep. If I said to you, don't lie tomorrow, you'd say, forget about it. If I said to you, you know, uh, uh, don't, don't lust tomorrow, you'd say, I just won't wake up. If I said to you, you know, uh, don't have a, just don't have one thought go through your head that, that, that is of envy or jealousy or of selfishness, don't do it. You'd say, well, I might as well just not wake up because it's impossible. And yet Jesus Christ, from day one until the Friday that he died, holy, sinless, perfect, why? So that he could die for you. So that he could be your substitute. The right time, the right man. And finally, the verse says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Why? To redeem. To redeem. What does that mean to redeem? Anybody here who's, 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 who's ever been, been shopping, has been to a mall, you'd say to redeem is, is to buy something, to exchange something. We redeem a coupon, we exchange it, and we get something. We buy things. And I would say here, not only the right time and the right man, but the right price, the right price. I looked online, and I, I use this example, and I use it uh, knowing just the, 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 the sadness that is behind it. And I don't, I don't entail for this just to be used and just to be forgotten about. But 150 years ago, if you took our currency today, you know how much a slave went for 150 years ago? You'd say, if, if you use today's currency, what our dollar bill is today, if you were to go back to the year 1850, 1860, how much money would it cost you to buy a person? It was around $27,000. $27,000. How much can you buy? You know, there's people who are still sold into slavery today. People who are still sold. And you say, how much would it cost if someone bought a slave today? $90. You know what that tells me? According to our standards, people aren't worth anything anymore. They're not worth anything. Even years ago, however wrong slavery was, even years ago, 
People thought that people were worth more than they're worth today. Today, what does it matter? Who's worth anything anymore? What, what does it really matter? The prices. I looked online at a, at, at, at a, it was a very reputable source, an economics magazine, and they said, just by what we're worth, and sometimes you talk about people donating organs, or, or we, we talked about heart transplants, and eyes, and livers, and feet, and they said, just by what the human's body is worth, they said, just in that, it's worth 30 to 40 million dollars. 30 to 40 million dollars. And just think about that. Think about what you're in possession of. A 40 million dollar, you'd say, that's unbelievable. It makes the mind, you'd say, that's incredible. What I have here, as I look from hand to hand and from my soul to the crown of my head, I'd say, $40 million. You know what, though? We all know this, that the price of something or the price of someone is just what someone is willing to pay for it. What is someone willing to pay for something? That's what it's worth. Because we all have stuff, you'd say, in our basement. And we'd say, I wonder how much I could get for it. Well, you know what? You find out. You put it online. You find out no one wants it. Or you find out that you had a secret gem in the basement. You put it online and everybody wants it. And so the price goes way up. You say, what am I worth? $90? $25,000? million? What am I worth? Let me put it in perspective for you. How much is God worth? Put a price tag on the God of heaven and earth. Because he's the one who became a man and died for you. The right price. The right price, you'd say, no one outbids God. But we're accepting offers from anybody else. No one outbids God. But we're accepting offers from everybody else. And it comes time to find out that God became a man. And he gave himself for the ungodly. For sinners, he gave himself for me. The perfect, the perfect one died for wrecked people. The just for the unjust. The good for the bad. Why? Why? That's what we're left here asking. Why read from the Bible? Why declare a perfect savior? Because it was at the right time. And it was the right person. And it was the right price. And it was for the wrong person. Because that's all I was. I was just a wrong person. I was a wrecked person. I was a sinful person. You add it. That's who I was. And yet he came to die for me. And so what the Bible is offering to you tonight, I don't want anyone to go away from this saying, I just didn't understand what, what you meant by that. What I'm telling you tonight is that when you go home and you look up into the night sky, and if you say the same person who placed the stars there, who fastened them in the sky, was the same person who was fastened to the cross for my sins. The same person who created time, he makes the clock tick, is the same person who guarantees my eternity because he came into this world at the right time. He was the right person and he paid the right price. He gave himself for me. That's salvation. That's perfect. You can't add to that. 
You can't take away from it. The only thing you stand to lose tonight is your sins, and you could gain Christ. You say, how? Because the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me so. The same Bible that tells me God loved me is the same Bible that tells me God sent his son at the right time in order to buy me back. The same Bible that tells me in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth tells me that when my life comes to an end, I have placed my trust in the only man who knows the way out of a grave. He rose again. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. And as we've been hearing, for when we were yet without strength, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In the fullness of time, at the right time, God sent forth his son. He was born of a woman. He was really a man. He was really God. He was truly obedient. And he came in order to buy me. And he gave himself at Calvary. You could be saved. You could be forgiven. You could have peace with God. It's absolutely guaranteed by this Bible. You could have it tonight.